My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects Podcast. It's another episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects. Today we're on episode 41, and I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Last week, we discussed the creation and achievements of the choir at Temple Square. Today we're back to our story and kicking things off with some context in 1848. So, what was going on in America at this time? To start off, on January 12th of 1848... A congressman from Illinois would attack then-President Polk for his handling of the Mexican War in a speech to the House of Representatives. This speech would finally put Abraham Lincoln on the map. Because just three weeks later, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo would officially end the Mexican-American War, with Mexico relinquishing its rights to Texas above the Rio Grande River and ceding New Mexico and California to the United States. From this treaty, the U.S. would also gain claims in Arizona, Nevada, Utah, and part of Colorado. Remember, our Mormon settlers are already in the Salt Lake Basin, now officially U.S. territory. The Church, as the only Americans living in the Salt Lake Basin, had an opportunity to decide how they wanted this territory to look. We'll come back to this later. Now, Zachary Taylor, the hero of the Mexican War, after it ended, would then run for President of the United States and win, officially becoming the 12th President on November 7th of 1848. Taylor's time in office was difficult. It turns out that sometimes it's easier to lead an army than to regulate politicians. The problem his administration was facing was with all the federal land gained from the Mexican War, what were they to do with it? What territories were to be states and which would remain territories. A lot of debate was going into this, as Taylor and his staff had to consider borders, leadership taxes, and slavery sentiments while determining how to structure this new frontier. President Taylor, however, wouldn't be around for a final decision. Just a year and a half into his presidency, on July 4th, 1850, Taylor came down with severe stomach pains that would lead to his death within the week. Historians today still debate the actual cause. Nobody knows for certain what killed him, but we do know what President Taylor was doing on July 4th of 1850. He was attending a fundraising event for the Washington Monument. Now, if you haven't seen the Washington Monument, it's a must. The Washington Monument is an obelisk at the National Mall in Washington, D.C. Construction started on the project in 1848, but quickly they ran into funding issues. Hence, President Taylor made the fateful visit to a fundraising event on July 4th of 1850. Now, the monument won't be finished until the late 1800s. Today it stands as the world's tallest predominantly stone structure and the world's tallest obelisk, standing 554 feet in the air. In fact, it was the tallest structure in the world until 1889, when it would be overtaken by the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Dang those French. The monument is an amazing dedication to George Washington. The interior of the monument is hollow, 
with an iron staircase spiraling up the walls to the top and an elevator in the center. I visited the monument in 2012, but it was closed off as an earthquake had caused a crack to open up along the top of it. It is now again open to the public. However, you can't take the stairs to the top, as safety concerns have caused the stairs to be closed off. That's a shame, because if you could walk up the stairs of the Washington Monument, just under halfway to the top, 220 feet from the base to be exact, you'd see the backside of the stones that make up the monument. If you looked closely, you'd find a stone with words carved into it. And if you're a member of the church, you'd recognize the words. They read, Holiness to the Lord. The same phrase inscribed on every Mormon temple across the globe. But just how did this phrase come to make it on the interior of one of the oldest monuments in U.S. history? Today's object is the Deseret Stone. So what is the Deseret Stone and how did it land on the Washington Monument? To understand the impact of this object, let's hop back to our story of the church in the year 1848. At this point, the church had accomplished some major stepping stones. They'd established a refuge in the West, successfully navigated a succession crisis with Brigham Young as the new prophet, and were now ready to focus on growth. Brigham Young at this point had some big plans, plans for what he'd make of the West. At this point, the church was colonizing the Salt Lake Basin, and it had settlers all over California and Oregon. With Mexico turning over the entire western frontier to the United States, Brigham Young had plans for that territory. So in 1848, Brigham Young and the leadership wrote up plans for what they named the Deseret Territory. Now, quick side note, the word Deseret came from the Book of Mormon and is translated to mean honeybee. The leadership liked this symbolism as they felt it represented the hard-working nature of the church. So the Deseret Territory was huge. If looked at on a map, the proposed territory would encompass all of what is now Utah, Nevada, and large portions of Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, and Oregon. It even took up a third of California, including the entire coast all the way down to San Diego. Over the course of the next 10 years, even after no longer being considered a part of what will be Utah, the church will colonize over 100 towns within this territory. So, with the plans mapped out, the name chosen, church officials were selected to go to Washington, D.C. to ensure that the voices of the church were heard as the federal government determined what would happen to this newly obtained land from the Mexican War. To go along with the chosen officials, a 22-foot-long petition, containing almost 2,300 names, was going with the church officials to Washington. Now, another quick side note, I love that the petition was 22 feet long. It's probably best that I wasn't around at this time and chosen to represent the church. I can just envision myself walking into the Senate and saying, hold on, we have some names here joining our petition, and then dropping the end of the roll and watching it roll across the floor of the Senate while I deadpan stared at the senators. Like I said, a good thing I wasn't there. For the church leadership, the only object not yet determined was whether the Deseret Territory should remain a territory or whether it should become a state. Initially, Brigham Young and the leadership had settled upon it being a territory to avoid too much federal scrutiny. However, 
After deliberating with Thomas Kane, remember, he's the non-Mormon after whom Canesville, Iowa is named, a friend of the church throughout this whole process, they felt they should petition for statehood. The reason being, according to Kane, was that if they were a state, they could select their own officials to govern themselves, whereas if they were a territory, officials would be chosen by the federal government. So, with their minds made up, they drew up a formal constitution for the state of Deseret, complete with the necessary elected officials, including the first presidency members Brigham Young as the governor, Heber C. Kimball as lieutenant governor, and Willard Richards as secretary of state. The Deseret territory wasn't officially recognized by the federal government, but to the members of the church, this was set. The unofficial territory would last just two years. For, though the church felt they had this all figured out, when they arrived in Washington in 1850, there was no interest in considering what they had created. Why is that? As we mentioned in the opener of the show, the newly elected president, Zachary Taylor, had a brewing conflict on his hands. Although California and New Mexico and now Utah were requesting statehood, he couldn't just hand it out to these territories. The reason being was this. Would these states be slave states or free states? The southern states didn't want any more senators of free states getting seats at the table and voting against them. As the debating became more intense, the Senate all but refused to hear out the proposals of the church leaders. In their frustrations, the church found they had a familiar friend in the Senate willing to petition for them. Again, here we have Senator Stephen A. Douglas from Illinois helping them out. Remember, Senator Douglas hopped in during the final days of Nauvoo, stopping a potential all-out war after Joseph Smith was killed. He was the one that encouraged the church to head west where they could at last worship without the mobs. Now, he was willing to petition for them in Congress. But though Senator Douglas had a loud voice, the southern states were too weary of additional free states. So when the dust finally settled, the government rolled out what has come to be known as the Compromise of 1850. In the Compromise, California was made a state and Utah and New Mexico were to remain as territories. Whereas most of Congress was okay with the church establishing this territory, they wanted it smaller. One senator in particular really didn't like the name Deseret. If you've listened to this podcast from the beginning, I'm sure you don't have to guess which state Senator Thomas Benton was from. That's right, he's from Missouri. He claimed that he thought Deseret sounded too much like desert. Though the fact that the word came from the Book of Mormon must have made it great upon his ears. As such, looking to appease everyone, Senator Douglas chose a new name for the Deseret Territory. It'd be called Utah, after the Ute Indians sharing the Salt Lake Basin with the church and native to the territory. Well, like we mentioned in the opener, Zachary Taylor died while visiting the Washington Monument. His VP, Millard Fillmore, took over as the 13th President of the United States, and on September 9th of 1850, he signed the legislative package that created the Utah Territory. Now, this wasn't the gigantic territory that Brigham Young had envisioned, but it was still bigger than the state of Utah is today. When the Utah Territory was created in 1850, it covered all of Utah, Nevada, half of Colorado, and part of Wyoming. Utah will remain a territory for the next 46 years before finally being made a state. Now, as they're a territory, 
Who did President Fillmore choose as the first governor of the newly created Utah Territory? Brigham Young. This may sound surprising, but when President Fillmore was considering the appointment of officers for the territory, he finally met with church leaders who told him, quote, The people of Utah cannot but consider it their right as American citizens to be governed by men of their own choice, entitled to their confidence, and united with them in opinion and feeling. End quote. President Fillmore agreed. He chose Brigham Young as the governor and superintendent of Indian Affairs. He chose three other members of the church for high-level positions in the new Utah Territory. However, fearing what the Senate might think of an all-Mormon government in Utah, President Fillmore chose four non-Mormons to move to Utah and help lead the territory. This will become a disaster, but we'll get to that in a later podcast. So on February 3rd of 1851, Brigham Young took the oath of office. The church now had a home in Utah, where the prophet was also the governor. I can't even imagine the excitement this must have incited among the members at this time. After being driven from three states, enduring countless hostilities and almost war, after disputes with governors and getting a deaf ear from the federal government, the members of the church now had their own territory, the second largest in the United States, with room to grow, and a local government made up mostly of current church leadership. Quite the story. Well, with all of this in place, Brigham Young got to work. He was immediately tasked with taking a census and establishing legislative districts. But also there was among his work requirements a request from Washington, D.C. We've arrived at our object. Turns out that the Washington Monument, what was to be the most grand and tallest monument in the world, still hadn't overcome their lack of funds. The Washington Monument Society had an idea on how to overcome this lack of funds. They were requesting all the states and territories to donate a stone to General Washington's monument. The stones started to roll into town. There were donations from Minnesota, Oregon, Wyoming, Nevada, and Nebraska, There were stones donated by the Cherokee Nation and groups representing Chinese and Japanese societies. Stones were donated by foreign countries, as England, China, and Japan donated stones as well. In fact, in a speech given in 2011 to the leaders of Turkey, Barack Obama discussed the stone donated by the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire to the project. Many of the stones were rejected. Most just spoke of their individual states and purposes, like those stones donated by the stonemasons. Some of the stones were controversial. For example, a stone was donated by the Pope. This angered some smaller local political groups in Washington who broke into the monument at night and crushed the Pope's stone. But the last stone to arrive on September 27th of 1853 was from Utah. Brigham Young wanted Utah to participate. However, There was no marble in that part of Utah, and the stones requested were to be light gray. So Brigham Young commissioned a team to cut a two-foot-by-three-foot block of white limestone from the Sampete Quarry in southern Utah. Over the course of 40 days, holiness to the Lord was inscribed across the top of the stone. Below it was a beehive, just above the word Deseret. You'll notice they didn't mention Utah. The stone was then polished loaded onto an ox cart, and trekked across the United States to Washington, D.C., a trip that took over three months for the missionaries to accomplish. 
That stone was accepted and it now sits on the interior of the monument. Today, if you were allowed to walk up the stairs, again 220 feet from the base, you'd find holiness to the Lord above Deseret carved into the stone. So, what did this stone mean to church members? For the early members of the church, what they'd accomplished with the territory of Utah must have been more than they'd ever dreamed possible. They were in the Rocky Mountains. They had a church-based governmental leadership and a gigantic territory wherein to grow. The Deseret Stone symbolized their arrival as an official member of the United States. They no longer feared that mobs or militias could snuff out this movement. Now, how can you see the Deseret Stone today? Like I've mentioned, you can't. The stairs are now closed to the public. However, you can Google the stone to see what it looks like. Now, we should note that Utah added a second stone years later. On the 55th anniversary of Utah becoming a state, so in 1951, Utah officials held a small ceremony on the monument's stairwell where they received approval to add the second stone, right underneath the Deseret Stone. The second stone reads, quote, Deseret means honeybee, changed to territory of Utah, 1850, state of Utah, 1896. End quote. I guess it was important to clarify what Deseret meant and when Utah officially became a state. So here we sit. The church has the Utah Territory. Church leadership has the highest state political positions. And Brigham Young was working to establish more than 100 colonies across the territory. Now to focus on spiritual growth. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects. Episode 41, Deseret Stone. As always, if you have questions or comments, you can reach out to me directly at joehomc at gmail.com. And my broken record, if you enjoyed this episode, please like it or share it on social media or subscribe and leave me a comment on iTunes. It helps spread the word. Thanks again for listening. 